Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Watching With podcast. I'm Mariah Gates from Netflix, and I am joined this week with uh, David Michaud and Joel Edgerton from The King. Hello. Hi. I'm David. Can you tell everybody a little bit about what you did on the film, if they don't already know? Uh, This is Joel. I uh, co-wrote the screenplay with David, and I play Falstaff in the film, and I helped produce the movie. And I'm David. I directed the movie. I co-wrote it with Joel. I'm a producer on it. Uh, Yeah. All right. Do you guys want to set up in maybe one sentence what this movie is? Well, this is basically the story of uh, our version of, rather, our version of a story about uh, Henry V, um, King Henry V of England, spanning uh, the time from uh, pre his coronation to... Um, we were talking earlier about spoiler alerts until after he um, uh, conquers France. Roughly, you know, the the subject is um, inspired by my interest in the plays, but it's a complete departure from Shakespeare. And one of the things that is reminiscent of the plays is is it it spans the time that roughly that uh, Henry IV parts one and two, the beginning of that, to the end of roughly what where Henry the fifth lands. Henry the four part two is my favorite Shakespeare because I am strange. It's so that good. is an unusual I, one to to love love. It's really good. Everyone read it after you've listened to this. There's some very emotional <laughs> stuff in it actually. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um all right, so we're gonna count down three, two, one, like in I guess Die Hard and people are gonna press play. Okay. Let me try this. Three, two, two one. one, we're pressing play. So this is the credits. Plan B, who produced the movie. Porchlight Films, uh, Liz Watts' company. Liz produced my first two movies, Animal Kingdom and The Rover. Blue Tongue Films is is, uh, our collective that David and I belong to. My brother, Kieran Darcy-Smith, Mirror Folks, Luke yeah. Doolan, a bunch of Spencer Australian Sasser. people. Spencer Susser. Oh, he's not Australian. but um. And Yoki is my f- my favourite dog. Is it? Yeah, my dog from when I was 16. Um, this, I think this was our... One interesting thing to note about this scene, which is where we opened the film and early on our dis- discussions were it would be interesting to start the film at the very end of a battle. Um, and this is Hotspur walking around the battlefield. But it was the, you talk about the way a movie is shot. This is the very last day. This is the very last thing we shot. Very last As soon shot. as we got one of these, we kept shooting because the sun was getting more and more beautiful all the time. We kept shooting, called cut, check it, check the gate, even though that's not a thing anymore. And, so, and then wrapped. And then every, basically everybody hugged everybody else and mm. said thank you and went back to their lives. Um, so this is Hotspur, one of the most interesting um, characters and really sort of uh, you know interesting debate to have to start a film. Um, you know, not with your central character, um, but he becomes almost a comparative um, force. Uh, as, a, as sort of a, another side of the coin of what Hal is, and as we meet Hal soon, who's 
somewhat kind of throwing his life away um, and being a wayward youth. Hotspur, on the other hand, is... is uh, In the thick of it. Yeah, and a champion and somebody that his father, even though they're in opposition politically, he, he is the beautiful Ben Mendelssohn is about to... Yeah, and us. it's also using this as a kind of prologue, you know, it's rather, you know, wanting to do everything we could to avoid having some kind of text scrawl, crawl at the beginning mm. of the movie saying this is what was going on in England at the time. Just have something that sets up that all is, um, all is, uh, not all is right in the kingdom. I think it's um, really cool you introduce uh, the king here coughing. Like you don't even see him; you just hear him coughing. Mm. And no yeah. one coughs like Mendelssohn. <laughs> yeah, there was also, you know, one one of the things that we did making this film, apart from, you know, the, the launch pad was was the plays, and Shakespeare had taken his own sense of what the history was and taken a lot of creative license. There was sort of a few elements to this film that, you know, we told our own version of the story, but part of that was cherry picking certain elements of Shakespeare. And the research that we were doing was that second phase that gave us a lot of information. The, the, the interesting thing about Henry IV and his beautiful Ben here is, is playing him. He was a very sick man. Uh, and some say that his poor decisions, his poor political decisions and why the country had descended into a kind of state of civil war was because he was making paranoid, mm. irrational choices as a king. They don't know exactly how he died, but they suspect, they think, they speculate that it was he died of syphilis. Yeah. Yeah, I notice later on you see the the um, sores on him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was an interesting thing when it comes comes time to casting. You know, it's like I, I'm sure when we first started writing this, we were thinking of a guy. You know, we'd just some mm. go to a kind of Ian McKellen type. You know, some kind of older man. But this is you know the youth of this. The youth of this movie is, uh, you know, I mean, technically Mendelssohn is too old to play this character. Henry Four died when he was forty-five. Mendelssohn is, I think, forty-eight or uh, was forty-eight when he when he did this. Somehow he's not hot, and I feel like that's a really big feat here. The man is not hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how that was. Po it's possible, but there it is. He's a very charismatic man. He's still charming. He's just not. Hot in this movie. Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, <laughs> we won't, we won't try to make him hot. That's Tom Glencarney's uh, uh, role to be the hot one. Um, Tom, Tom, can I just say a little thing about Tom? It's I don't often respond to self tapes. Um, people, you know, people have just done an audition at home on their own, uh, off their own bat. I don't know why it is. Usually, it's because it's coming without any. Um, direction they're just taking a the actor is usually just taking a stab in the dark at an approach um tom sent me a self-tape and it was I, I didn't know who he was um but he it's just there's something explosive about him you know something so focused and um and it needed the character needed it you know uh he needs to on some level kind of assert himself really ferociously on the first 20 minutes of the movie and in doing so almost needs to present himself as uh, uh, 
an alternative to how you know uh I mean, in theory, later on, they have a one-on-one, they have a fight, they're going to go, they're, they're fighting over the, uh, you know, in uh, nominally over the kingdom. And in theory, if he'd won that fight, he might have ended up being the king, you know, in some form or other. He wanted to get a sense of uh, a, a, a fiery, radically polar opposite to how. It also, you know, and, and the casting of Tom again, speaking about age in the movie, you know, and when you see Timmy Chalamet, you know, these young people holding kind of seats of power or, or leading armies, um, making political decisions, and that the older people like myself and Ben, you know, are considered that old age bracket. Men didn't, people didn't generally live uh, as, as long, which is why, again, David remarked about when we first approached it the assumption was we would just cast it in a very different way and I think we see a lot of movies in the past that our period movies do that we really wanted to aim to make particularly King Henry was 26 when he uh, put the crown on his head it's like we wanted to reflect that youth in, 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 the, in the film and Hotspur well, that's an example of someone who actually I think Hotspur was actually in his 40s when uh, when he died uh but it again, it just felt like you wanted a, a really strong counterpoint to the kind of drunken layabout. Um, I mean, this I just wanted I wanted Hal to feel like a, a, a kind of you know post adolescent teenage stoner teenager. The dirty feet are a really good <clears throat> touch there. Yeah, and here's here's another actor not being hot. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Falstaff, though, is one of the most charming like fictional characters ever, and I think you pulled that off really well. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, talking about going our own way um, as well, there, there, there was this feeling like, okay, we're going to create a different version of Falstaff, and anyone familiar with the plays obviously knows exactly what I'm talking about. Falstaff holds a, holds a different kind of philosophical space, a different energy in the plays that we've taken traces of and really kind of morphed him into something different, slightly younger, well, quite a lot younger. Um, and more of a kind of a, a young Ray Winston type guy that's in the pub rather than a big... Um, drunken uh, buffoon, drunken narcissist. Buffoon, narcissist, <laughs> con artist, you know. Um, and, and, you know, again, talking about true research that, that um, some scholars say that Falstaff was partly based on a man called John Oldcastle, Sir John Oldcastle, who had been a knight leading armies for Richard II and I think Henry IV had formed a friendship with the young prince over their common disinterest and dislike for Henry IV. Mm. He was against the Catholic Church on a certain uh, number of points, which made him a lollard. And he was really like a political activist in in his uh, opinion uh, and would form groups and have meetings. And um, so he, we went down a little bit of that road as well. He was ultimately executed by uh, Hal, Henry V. Mm. I think he was burned at the stake. And Hal still clung to his, that whatever was left of their friendship, this is, you know, so I understand. And actually pleaded with him to recant when he was there tied up to the stake and 
Um, and that just like all he had to do was say that he was wrong and he was sorry and he'd get to come down and he refused to do it. And uh, here we go. <laughs> That's yeah. about 40 burritos just swimming around in my belly, mm-hmm. um, which I, I, I ate ravenously while I was uh, in my edit suite for, for Boy Rose. Um, and then this shot, next one. You know, it's getting very, this one we actually shot months and months later, this shot, this, we went to Budapest just to do this shot. I just like, Timmy's such an, has such an extraordinarily expressive, um, I don't know, essence. I knew that what I wanted was just one shot of him, of, of unbridled joy. Uh, and you know, as, but with a sense of foreboding, calm before storm, that he's, this is where he's happy, but he knows deep down that something darker awaits him. Uh, can you see the scar on his cheek there? Yeah. There's also, you know, talking about research that Hal had, during a battle, been shot in the face, by, but he had a bolt stuck in his face. Um, and it took, I think, Two weeks. Mm, something like that. They they had to get an engineer to design a way of retrieving the arrow because, of course, it has that triangular tip um, that for them to just rip it out would sort of disfigure him a lot. Um, they had they had people working on a design for some kind of device that would help extract the arrow. So that wow. was our little uh, scar has some historical truth. This stuff we shot in, <clears throat> we shot uh, in Budapest. All, um, all these interiors are real interiors? or Well, this whole set, these are connected to the exteriors as well. It's a kind mm. of extraordinary thing that was, it had been built for a TV show, I think, in the 90s or something. Uh, I think it was a, like a Derek Jacobi show. I can't remember exactly what it was, but... This whole village. This whole kind of village. Wow. And then, you know, our uh, great, you know, production team, Fiona Crombie, Alice Felton, Matt Heil Davis, Davies, um, you know, kind of did a, like a huge amount of extra work to it. But it was, I, I, I don't actually know how we would have been able to make the movie if this thing, this place hadn't existed. And by the way, just, just a bit of uh, fan trivia here is while, while Timmy and I are chewing up the scenery here about... 200 meters away Arnold Schwarzenegger and his team were making the latest Terminator film wow yeah yeah everybody was making extra trips to (laughs) craft services sort of hoping they'd spot Arnie is this a real building here or is this it's partially a real building I think that's um, part parts of it are Haddon Hall but then we in 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 England but we then just sort of built a sense of London in the early 15th century, you know, a sense of what it was. I think the population of London at the time was 30,000. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a big city, but only 50 years earlier, it had been 90,000. Two thirds of them were wiped out in the plague. This is just right after the plague. Yeah. And we're kind of selling this as Westminster, you know, that it was in a sense like a little was kind of, you know, a, a kind of horse ride across a bunch of fields away from London proper. That was that early phase of the shoot, you know, David and the crew were um, basically doing this whole trip around the UK specifically to, to sort of shoot at locations that were period specific, certain halls and castles and 
in Wales, up north near Yorkshire. Um, it, it was, you know, it's, it was quite a mammoth um, task of taking the travelling circus for, for the sake of architecture. And it was tricky because finding medieval architecture was difficult because, you know, there's a lot of it in England, but given its age, it is most often either in a state of ruin or has had 600 years worth of other shit done to it, you know. Mm. And um, and so finding places that could... I mean, even a, a room like this one, at, uh, this is at Barclay Castle, it looks like it's just an existing room. There's an enormous amount of... Like uh, Fiona Crombie put... a a new floor in those walls behind are she put in um the tapestries and stuff obviously um cover the exit signs <laughs> yeah you know. hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean this is this is this scene i really love i mean in terms of the craft of the gelling of all heads of department it's so it's so beautiful and um in and rich in its design and authenticity um you know we, we, i think it's it, the one thing you could always hope for and it's saying is standing outside of watching what david's achieved by pulling in all the right people where all the elements all fit together and you you feel like everybody's on the same page um is is what you can only dream for um this was I just like the setting up of, I mean, you know, the, you've got the lords on one side, clergy on the other. I mean, just the, the power, it's difficult to try and without being super expositional, just trying to set up wherever you can, the power, something as simple as the power of the church back then. And what it, what that, you know, the very fact that two thirds of the population of London had been wiped out in the plague poses all sorts of questions for you about how, what people's relationship was to life and death and, and and to God and the afterlife and and then therefore the power that the the church wielded. This is Nike Kurta. She's a uh, wonderful Hungarian actress. I like the chain he's wearing throughout these early scenes. Yeah, Timmy liked it too. Bit of bling. Bit of bling. <laughs> yeah. S sexual. Um, See how it got really awkward? Yeah. Because yeah. there's a sort of a naughty sex scene and we all just went really quiet. This fade I really love where it goes from him being angsty to that just beautiful shot of the wheat. Pete Shiberis, my editor, and I, are, we, 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 we always go way too hard on the crossfades. We love them. Uh, he's a master of them. We always go way too hard and then pull them back, you know, just start looking for the ones that actually just feel unnecessary or... Do you mean you do too many of them or you take too long to fade from one side <laughs> to the other? <laughs> no, we just <laughs> like do two minute many. fade. Uh, this stuff really fascinates me. You know, like we had so many debates. It might, might be interesting to actually talk about Dr. Hugh here. This incredible historian. Dr. Um, Hugh Doherty who came in um, and kind of is one of those, he's got an encyclopedic knowledge. He's not, you're not asking him a question, he's Googling it. You could ask him about anything to do with any history, any culture, any period of time. And he, he has some kind of, not only knowledge of it, but excitement for it. Um, and we were constantly sort of getting advice from him. So I, I just love little details, like the prince there was sitting on the chair, um, the kinds of um, historical details, but also just sort of 
hypothesizing about how battles were organized, who did what, you know, big things like what would it be like to be the guy that just carries the flag and why is that flag there? And he had all sorts of theories and, you know, obviously um, uh, truth and fiction mixed together sometimes. Uh, it's interesting to sort of suppose what may have happened without really knowing exactly how things were organized. Um, particularly worth talking about later once we get to the Battle of Agincourt as well. Yeah, I love the detail on all the flags and then the way they reflect on everyone's um, like armor. That's a great touch. Yeah. But even just the thought of like how long it would take for one man to get suited up in armor. Like you need a, you need a they call him a Batman actually. You need a Batman um, to hook you up and do all your latches up and it's not like you just go, hey, you and I are going to fight and then 30 seconds later you're yeah, grappling you on the ground. It's No, I mean, that, and as a production kind of logistical exercise, it was, it was enormous. I mean, you, there are days where we had, you know, 300 extras in this stuff and each person, it took two costumers 20 to 30 minutes to put each person's suit of armor on. How long does it take to put the armor on the horse? The horse does it itself. Yeah, mm. <laughs> um, we had horses with uh, to, like uh, opposable thumbs. Oh, um, I don't know. It takes a long time. I mean, you know, the other thing was like once you put armor on, you're like, how, how do I not have a panic attack in this armor? And you know, the wisdom that if you were a young nobleman, um, you would have had a suit of armor made for, for you from the age of about six years old, mm -hmm. and you would have play like done play fighting with other kids in armor. So. By the time you're of age to go to, to war as a teenager, you would be comfortable enough wearing that stuff um, that it wouldn't be just the immediate shock like I had when I was in the costume department. Yeah, and, you know, I'm an actor in a costume department. I'm not a, a guy about to have put my life on the line wearing a tin can. Was it warm in, in that? Yeah, very nice and warm. Yeah. <laughs> it was a hot, hot... It was hot. We, we were shooting battle scenes in... Um, kind of the towards the end of summer in Hungary. In Hungary, which is very hot. This is such a great line. Where's the big dog? So this is our kind of um, retooled um, act of you know this is our gross act of historical revisionism. This is our kind of retooled version of the Battle of Shrewsbury, which was an actual battle, not a one-on-one -on -one fight. Um, but I really, I mean, it's one of those things that start, you know, originally I think when we wrote the script we had a battle happening here, but I, I you know, it's obviously um, something I really liked about the idea of presaging that um, the offer that Hal makes to the Dauphin later um, to fight one-on-one, -on -one, that this is a thing that he's willing to do. In this instance he's doing it because he fears, um, he fears for his brother's safety, um, but it also gives us an opportunity to not just kind of launch into a kind of crazy, you know, impossible to follow battle sequence. But these, as you know, Joel was alluding to before, you get into these suits of armor; they're incredibly unwieldy, uh, difficult to move in, and you know, 
it was very important to me that this fight not be some kind of demonstration of incredibly dexterous sort of sword play. These guys would be very trained. Uh, all, all kind of young noblemen would be trained to fight, but uh, I'm sure, you know, I, it was important to me that after a couple of sort of, you know, Hal here is a bit rusty, he's making some stupid moves, but that very quickly this thing would descend into just like two kids in a schoolyard bashing the hell out of each other, in, but wearing tin cans and fighting to the death. And being gassed beyond belief, like within 30 seconds, yeah. 40 seconds of physical output, you are barely breathing. Um, the the battle scenes as we rendered them in this green play, you know, and, and in the original incarnation of this, it's, I hate to talk about stuff that's not there, but, you know, the, the point of view and the story for each battle was very clear to us. And, and this one is about how... Uh, doing something he doesn't want to do in order to protect and save his brother's life. And um, each of the battles as we approach them, even the the one you saw at the beginning, which is sort of the the post-battle beginning of the film, each of them had a, had a purpose that we wanted to have a sense of difference about. Um, um, you know, and, and, and in terms of, uh, excuse the pun, but picking your battles in terms of budget constraints and, and, and where we would where we landed with a budget where we what we could make the movie with and where we would choose to spend that money obviously the most important thing for us was where we're, we're heading towards which is the the battle of Asian Asian Court. Court. are these the actors are these stunt bit of both mm. yeah bit of both I think it's really great that this ends sort of on the ground so many of these fights real life would end with the two people on the ground and I don't know yeah. that we always do that in movies heaving for breath um yeah and there's something about you know there's it, it, it exists in the play and I think it was one of the essences that David's captured really well here too is like you know both these young men have a reason and a purpose that we can get behind and uh, empathize with. So as hot headed as Hotspur is, um, and as much of an enemy to the kingdom as he is, like, Hal's not reconciled with his father. He's committing an act of violence here to protect his brother. He's, but it's not a personal thing against Hotspur. And there's some, the essence that I'm talking about is a sense of feeling a bit of sadness for the loss of life of this like young warrior. Yeah, I like this this of... line that makes it very clear that Hotspur could be either of them. Yeah, just a little shout out to Dean Charles Chapman here. Yeah, petulant brother, petulant brother Thomas, who was in Game of Thrones. I understand. I didn't, had no idea when we were doing it that he actually has quite a quite a big following. I haven't. I weirdly haven't watched Game of Thrones. I, I put myself through the the extremely weird exercise of the only thing I've really seen is the very last episode. I sat down and watched that. Really? Go backwards. Um, You're in good company. I have also not watched okay, wow. Game of Thrones. So it'll be the two of us. probably the only yeah. two in the world. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't want to put myself in the on the slab of the fans, but I haven't. I've seen a few of the first season. Not for one of not wanting 
to watch more. Just uh, the investment of time. I felt yeah. like I, the train left the station. Everybody was watching it, talking about it, and I wasn't on that train. And I, it, I let the train go too far. Now, if I got to watch it, I'm going to be that sad guy watching it in isolation. <laughs> I feel. I got that. turned off a bit by all the boobs and stuff in the first season or whatever. That's what I, probably I, brought I, I, a lot of people in. In the not, beginning. I'm, I'm not in the boobs. Is this um, Tara Fitzgerald here as the? Yeah, amazing actress too. She's I mean, so God. good. When she uh, first, when I watched the first time I watched this, and she popped up, I was like, "Oh, I yeah, love her!" She's awesome. I was excited when David told me that he was going to cast her because I'd worked with her before um, on Exodus, Ridley Scott film. Mm. Um, Tara was in that. She's in, just incredible. She's one of those. There's so many great um, actors out there that we see pop up in things time and time again, who are just those people that always hit the center of the dartboard. They come in cold. They're new at school, you know, they've just arrived on the set. They just nail the essence of what that character needs. Yeah. They're like Navy SEALs to me. They just, they, they sort of descend on the set, they complete the mission and then they go. And they're always great. Always. This scene's really dark. It's re it's kind of, you always wanted to be careful not to, especially when you're in East Cheap, the poor part of town, to not overlight them because... Even something as, you know, I've read somewhere that, you know, to, to burn a candle to, uh, with enough light to read by for an hour back then would have been the equivalent of like a week's wages. Mm. You know? um, and so people wouldn't have just been, you know, it's impossible to do it. You can't light things unless you have something going on. And here is Sean Harris. Look at him walking there. Sean... I, I remember when I first saw Sean read for me, I, you know, I wanted to offer it to him, but he insisted on reading. Is, this is beautiful Adam Arkapoor lighting. It's a bit Caravaggio there. Mm. Um, but when Sean came in and he insisted on auditioning for me, he read he read a couple of scenes uh, and I, it just exhilarated me because not only did I just love his what he was doing, but I it made it reassured me that the, the, the kind of the writing that Joel and I have been doing, this dialogue that's kind of strangely stiff and formal, knowing that we were having to, in a way, invent our own version of English because back then people really would have been speaking either French or, you know, a kind of incomprehensible Middle English. Um, he made he made it work. He made it feel beautifully strange. Um, he's, uh, he's another extraordinary actor, another kind of centre of the dartboard every time. Yeah, he, he always good and always interesting. Um in his approach, his choices, and, you know, the voice. He's got such a sort of haunting voice and it really makes you lean in uh, when you're watching the film, but also when you're working with him. Um, that's my nice way of saying he acts really quietly. No, no, <laughs> he just has this sort of beguiling presence, Sean, <clears throat> that, that can really draw you in or unsettle you or... Um, and this sort of uh, presence that is incredibly um, uh, loving or dangerous or intimidating. Like, he, he really has a big toolkit as an actor and, and an extraordinary body of work. He really did understand as well. You know, so when you think about how, I mean, even you look at old newsreel of people talking 50, 60 years ago, you know, the way people spoke and held themselves was so different. I mean, you multiply that by 600 years. I don't think we, I don't think we have any way of knowing 
what humans in the world looked and felt and sounded like. Yeah, because all those manuscripts, mm. like, don't, you know, the illustrations, they don't look anything like people, <laughs> really. And that's what I loved about Sean's performance was that he, he fully understood just, to, just uh, you know, beyond all the basic kind of sub subtext and motivation in any given scene, he just also understood the the need for it to feel slightly otherworldly, you know. That reaction where he just barely gulps when he hears about his brother is so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, he's beautiful. I mean, Timmy is extraordinary. He, he really is the real deal in terms of his cognitive powers as an actor, his, uh, his ability to tap into his intuition and access his emotion. And he's beautiful to look at and, and um, you know, he's just one of those rare people that comes along. Have you seen any of the fan art where people have put him into classical art paintings? No. Fits in perfectly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's the other element to him, I guess. Is is there's a timelessness. Yeah. He's there's he some... both he both he's both he feels timeless and he also t feels when you're hanging out with him, he feels like he's from the future. You know, I generally walk around in the world feeling like I'm still 17 years old. He makes me feel old. This was Timmy's first day. I mean, threw him in the deep end, you know, this is, uh, and he was up for it. I was kind of, you're always a little bit nervous about, um, giving an actor something huge to do on their first day, but then there is, there is something to be said for it. Just throw them in. I remember my partner, Mira Folks, uh, is a director, but she's also an actor and she, she, or she talks about having experience working with Jane Campion on top of the lake and Jane very deliberately threw her into her biggest, most emotional scene in the first season of Top of the Lake and how it terrified the hell out of her, the idea of doing it. But in retrospect, she appreciates how liberating it was just to get it out of the way, to don't have it looming mm -hmm. in the distance, you know. It is an interesting thing that, uh, as a, you know, talking from an actor's perspective is, is you, you know, if you have enough time anticipating uh, a shoot, you really do uh, start to put a value mark on certain scenes. Like they're the big flag in the flag in the ground moments, the big emotional scenes or the pivotal moments of change or, or understanding. And and it's really important. I learned a lesson from Gavin O'Connor actually years ago when we made Warrior that he, he kind of said, look, yes, put the importance on those scenes, but everybody's going to know that everybody's going to, everybody knows that we're going to treat that very importantly. Treat every scene with the same level of importance, even if it's a transitional moment. And uh, I thought that was a really extraordinary lesson. I personally, um, like you know as a filmmaker like to ramp up you know not start with something too difficult but as an actor i do like to be dropped mm. dropped in the jungle just like good luck pal you know and you really are like you know for timmy on days like this it's like you know there's anxiety and a fear that brings a certain level of focus when you're taking your character for a stroll publicly for the first time Mm. And it's like, especially for a you know kind of young twenty-two year old New Yorker, you know, who's been 
working diligently in the background on an accent that he knows is going to be scrutinized and and yeah you you you're taking it for a spin and you're in a room with a whole lot of super experienced and very talented english actors and a crew we shot this stuff in wales we built uh we built a set that actually is the exact replica of a place at Barclay Castle that was too difficult to shoot in yeah went to um you you were there we went to where Hal and his father reconciled where he died uh, on the edge of uh, Westminster Abbey no I wasn't with you I think that was when you were shooting Red Sparrow I think you went with Jennifer Lawrence oh right it wasn't you it was Jennifer Lawrence yeah Yeah, I was picked that name up (laughs) off the ground (laughs) you guys remind me of each other so much (laughs) oh god just shows you how many potholes are in my brain. That's a great line right there too. I am I. <laughs> I am I. I can I can see the internet. Just Talking about accents, this it. this accent for me was a terrifying one. Um, you know, we one of our research, our deep dive of research, I keep calling it, um, our, uh, a look at different aspects of the world and life was that majority of people, if they were speaking English, it would have had a northern. Uh, aspect to it. Well, the Middle the English had kind of drifted in out of the, uh, you know, out of, out of the, the Nordic uh, world. I noticed the bare feet in this scene this last time I watched it. It's yeah. a nice touch. A show of humility. Apparently when um, Hal entered the castle at Harfleur after they surrendered, he insisted on walking in barefoot again to hand the victory over to God. Mm-hmm. This is a... a a pretty extraordinary piece of music too that Nick oh, Patel. Yes. And how how was Henry was known to be an incredibly pious man. Mm. You know, there, there's some conjecture about whether that was something that became a, an immediate dramatic shift in him once he became king, that he lent into that uh, position of office and really gave himself up to God, or whether he was always that way. Um, but he was celibate. He became, once he became king, he remained celibate until he married. Mm. And this haircut, obviously, we have to talk about the haircut. It's going to live in the Hall of Fame of film haircuts, I think. Yeah, competes with my bowl cut, my, obviously, my sexy acorn <laughs> uh, hair. You, look, it's amazing how uh, how much the haircuts caused such a fervor. In I knew it would. I mean, I knew that it would make everybody nervous and it did. And we had lots of conversations and we did a lot of research and development on poor kind of extras in England we brought in to experiment with. And uh, and with that continued almost right up until the day that before he had to have the haircut. Uh, I always felt confident. I knew that it had to happen. It's like, this is Henry V's haircut. There's one um, painting that exists of him, and it's like a profile. It's perfect. Painting, and Match. this is exactly his haircut. And actually, he has a similar. Almost, we've given him. We've let it kind of drop. Anyway, whatever. It's almost Henry the same. Henry Five with a period mullet. With a period mullet. <laughs> the um, but I also knew that you know Timmy, like he can you you could you could put him in a McDonald's uniform and he'd look good. You know. Are these gifts um, real gifts that he received or? Items no, that you guys we've made sort them of... up. This one, oh, I don't even want to talk about this one. The bird. 
this so I wanted the idea that there was this kind of you know as you know Middle Eastern nod to Middle Eastern early mechanics which apparently were quite advanced you know that, that would blow these medieval minds and so turns they've out just seen the iPhone 11 yeah, <laughs> turns out the uh, turns out the mechanics are still quite challenging in 2018 oh wow <laughs> yeah, oh, it drove me crazy that augmented moment. with special effects um, this was all about I mean talking about borrowing elements of Shakespeare. Um, this scene, although it, is, it hasn't got a single word of Shakespeare's text in it, is leading us towards what was one of my favourite parts of performing the play was the tennis balls speech. Now, mm -hmm. in research, we found out that tennis hadn't been invented then. In the whole idea of the game of chases, it hadn't been invented. But we, we retained the idea of this ball. And as you see, it becomes a very powerful and important thread throughout the whole movie and this so this scene of gifts and celebration is is really a, yeah, a moment of real kind of a moment where Hal is really put on the spot as in the play where it's like all right somebody's calling me out for being a boy for being yeah, a play his, his child. reaction here compared to his reaction towards the end when he brings it up again really shows so much of his character He's trying to stay cool here, you know. Mm -hmm. He's trying to pretend he doesn't care. And in 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 opposition to the play, Hal then goes on to wage war in France immediately as a response to being insulted. He says, "Fill this box with gunstones and send it back to France and tell them like we're now at war." Um, we obviously were talking, taking, going on our own way with the character and creating a more reasonable person who received the insult with some sort of understanding, because it's true. Um, I've got to tell you a really quick story just because it reminded me of something very beautiful and funny and weird that happened when I did the play. And the moment the tennis ball's in my hand, there was this long pause. And we're at the opera house and my grandmother had come to see the play and she doesn't see very well. And in the silence in this beautiful acoustic room, you could hear this, my grandmother go, which one's Joel? <laughs> And the whole audience erupted in laughter. And I was the king. I was like, I was sitting in the middle. I was in the throne. Which one's Joel? Umbridge is a good word. We should bring that back. Yeah. I have to say, you know, like co-writing a screenplay with David is kind of extraordinary. There were certain words that would pop up in, 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 in his... Uh, work that I was like, oh, that's such a great word. And certain words put together, um, that was sort of part of the fun of it is like creating a language that was um, accessible um, uh, and yet had a certain formality um, and at times muscularity to it um, that didn't feel too colloquial and, and too modern. So somewhere in the middle and it was a fun little game to work out. But, but David came out with some uh, incredible turns of phrase. Mortimer was a character I always liked in the film or in the plays, um, and you hear him referenced, but you never see him in the film. Yeah, he becomes sort of like an exchange of a, a real kind of um, underpinning idea to Hal's uh, reform for the country, which is, you know, all the people that my father was paranoid about and put in prison and. Um, uh, in, well, incarcerated for one reason or another or was at war with, we're going to just do the opposite and we're going to make peace with those people. 
This is the amazing Thomason McKenzie. She's from New Zealand? She's from New Zealand. She comes from a, an acting family. Her mother uh, is um, uh, an actor and uh, like kind of dramaturgical. She worked with Mira on Mira's film, Judy and Punch, working with the kid actors. And in fact, Thomason's grandma is like 90 auditioned for Mira uh, to play a character in. Judy and Punch. She's just amazing. She has this incredible ethereal quality that's... Uh, uh, she's I, wonderful in Leave No Trace last year. Mm. She's wonderful in everything. She's wonderful here in, in such a small amount of real estate. Um, and, and, you know, it's worth sort of acknowledging not just her... I mean, you know, uh, the character of Hooper, uh, Thomason here, and Lily Rose later, this sense that... This movie really is, is about sort of men clanging uh, together, fighting each other, um, conflict of ideas, trying to climb to the top, trying to um, define themselves as great people. And and, uh, and then these women speak, cut through all that noise, all that clanging. Quite often because they have been, you know, have been forced to the perimeter and they're almost looking in from the outside. I mean, I really liked the idea of Philip. Hal did have a younger sister who was married to the king of Denmark. She became the queen of Denmark. The idea that she could come in to be there for his coronation and observe the goings on and just go, look, you've got to look at, you know, I've been seeing it in Denmark and I can see it going on here. Watch your back. This is... Um, She's been watching... Hamlet goes through all sorts of trouble <laughs> down there in Denmark. This is Andrew Andrew Howell, wonderful actor here, playing the Archbishop of Canterbury. Obviously, yes. without in real life, without a real lisp, in case you want to hire him for other things, <laughs> um, which is such a high wire act to, you know, as an accent's a one thing, but like speech impediments, like a stutter or a lisp. I have a natural lisp, but. To, to do that, I, I just thought it was such a high wire act and he's such a master at it. And this Salic Law stuff here, it's quite extraordinary, even though we did try, we moved away from the plays from very early on. The Salic Law stuff is in the plays and it's extraordinary the parallels that you can see between, you know, the contemporary parallels that you can find. I mean, this stuff really does feel like weapons of mass destruction nonsense. You know, it feels like... Uh, you could you could draw quite easily you could draw parallels between um you know we could you could see parallels with a kind of George W Bush um white house administration of a, a sort of a, a, a um a naive leader surrounded by a kind of a cabal of neocons bamboozling him forcing him into a, an illegitimate war you could also though we found see in some ways more apt for this Parallels with a kind of Barack Obama type administration of a genuinely well-intentioned, well-meaning man stepping into a mess, thinking, believing he was going to fix it, and then discovering that the machine of, of predominantly men around him was uh, immovable. There's more. Sean Harris being excellent. It's a lot of good barbs in this 
like the lines were a good order, but a good order should be, you know, requirement of the position. Mm-hmm. Like, really good insults in this film. <laughs> so maybe this is an opportunity to do a little shout out to Jane Petrie and her amazing costume team. Uh, I always, it's one costume, especially on a movie like this, is one of those jobs that I look at as a director and go, holy crap, I, my job's, I'm so glad I don't have your job. I don't, it wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, all of this stuff has to be built from the ground up. They have to make it all. Um, but they do it. Does she reference um, some of the like manuscripts and things of the era? or? Oh, she does the deep dive, yeah. Mm. And they're looking at all sorts of references of, of, of text, of um, painting, um, you know. And then, and then there's, like like with us, there's a certain amount of gaps in information where you just kind of have to make things up, but you, you kind of are then aping. Uh, in some way, you, you know, aping might be a good word to fill the gaps. It's like filling in the gaps in a way that, that feels authentic to what's around the gaps, you know. Um. I just uh, another little shout out to Joseph Davies here, the uh, uh, who plays Beale. Who oh yeah, is, uh, who's named after the Australian rugby player Curtly Beale. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's ex- I really I love his performance. It's like you know Falstaff is a washed up dude roaming around a dirty part of town, wanting to imagine that his his kind of faded nobility is uh, like a, a some kind of mark of celebrity, but no one really takes him seriously, but he's found a he's found a little acolyte. He's found someone to follow him around. I love how she was just like, "The king's not your friend anymore." Yeah, it's really good. Tara's great. This costume she's wearing as well as Jane Petrie. I think Jane kept it because she told me that it's the fav- her favorite thing she's ever designed. She made it out of an old piece of tapestry, tapestry didn't she? Uh, yeah, I think so. That's a great insult. Keeper of the Prince's puke. It's like, I want to reserve that Instagram handle. Yeah. Full stuff like uh, Donald Trump doesn't like to be made fun of. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. It's like, where's your famous friend now? I love this shot for some reason. It just feels like like a great old... Oil painting, mm-hmm. or an Ansel Adams photo. This is a, a real medieval kitchen at. Where's that one? That one's at Haddon Hall. Yeah, I've, I've stood in one of those giant uh, old ovens before. They're really mm. awe inspiring. They're so big. Cook a whole like multiple cows in them or something. It's wow, impressive. This is uh, it was it was one of the one of the great benefits also of having uh, Timmy play the king. You know, knowing at the time that that the king definitely would have been able to speak French. In fact, French like, would have been the main people, language of yeah. administration. They would have been speaking French, but the fact that Timmy speaks French, knowing Timmy anyway, if he didn't speak French, he would have learned it. Turned in the same performance by by doing the research and doing the work. Have him learn medieval French next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that he spent half of his half of his years as a child um, living in France. His father's French. And Those, Henry Henry the parents. 
No, just his dad. Just his dad. His, uh, his, you know, Timmy's middle name is Hal? Oh. Wow. Actually, the, um, Henry V also famously was the king who made, uh, English, otherwise considered a common language, made English the language of administration and government. So he's been confronted here by uh, a, like a supposed assassin who, you know, in theory, he should be interrogating a little more. It's like, what is this about and what does it mean? Uh, but instantly, you know, here he is. He's well-intentioned. He's a strong-willed kid, but he's suddenly in a room in the big chair surrounded by men. I wanted them all to be standing around his desk, looking, leaning down on him and forcing him to uh, start making decisions. And retaliate in some way. Um, and this is where, you know, we really separated from the plays. And it, like we were talking about the Hal's response in the plays, at the moment he, he receives a, a, a barrel of tennis balls is, is to just fly off the handle and wage war. Here he's dealing with his own um, aversion to his father in, in, in creating a path forward of diplomacy. Um, and but it was also a great way of looking at the escalation of politics, is the way, you know, politicians um, communicate and how that communication can just start to escalate towards something really, really bad. Um, but he's really trying here to run the kingdom differently to his father. But also, you know, this is again the essence of how you know our decisions to send to step away from Shakespeare really early on, not wanting it to be about the story of of one man and him grappling with his conscience, but rather it being about the machine around him. You know that there's something almost more frightening to me, more frightening to me than an unhinged leader are the unhinged voices of the people whispering in that un, in that leader's unhinged ears. You know. Uh, Again, as Joel says, like how 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 ego and hubris can uh, escalate quite rapidly into catastrophe. Yeah, the ball still still in his head. <clears throat> so all the candles in this scene, if they were in the poor side of town, would be like three weeks of someone's livelihood. Yeah, now you're just counting money burning. Yeah. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. This was the we shot this on the very first day. This was before the the official shoot started. Um, we shot this and uh, the next scene with the great um, the great Ed Ashley here playing not him but him playing Cambridge. Again, another beautifully strange. Like wonderful actor, but with a strange quality. Yeah, and here we have this sort of, sort of a cloak and dagger sense of escalation happening here, where the French are starting to inquire about the sanity of how. It's difficult to difficult to navigate this stuff because you like this envoy's visit is perfectly legitimate. He's like, "Hang on a minute, your king has just accused us of trying to assassinate him, sent a threatening letter. What's this about?" It is a kind of legitimate visit, but it has uh, the veneer of 
subterfuge. And so to us, to an extent as well, we wanted this movie. This stuff here is about how becoming paranoid and isolated and paranoid. You know how his his intentions, while honourable, can't withstand that feeling that there are things going on around him that are conspiratorial. There's a crossbow. Yeah. So these windows are something that was already existent. They show up a couple of times. These like beautiful. These ones, yeah, they they were there. We actually, in visual effects, had to had to paint a couple of things out. Mm-hmm. You know, certain certain um, pieces of heraldry that post dated this time. That beautiful room. This one. Is that a unicorn back there? Yeah, I loved having the conversations with Sean about what his office might look like. This is his, um, you know, his collected trinkets from around the world, but that he has his own little, his own little corner, dark, cold corner of the building. It's not overflowing with stuff. As Stephen Pugh. Plays grey. Yeah, I remember those conversations we had when David. You, your suggestion was that you know William plays such a key role in the film. Obviously, not just throughout, but the stuff that we'll learn about him later in his own political agenda. Um, that we weren't going to throw uh, fuel on that fire or tip the hat too much to what his agenda is by creating a, a world of opulence and nor is it necessarily profit he's looking for by by you know um his agenda it's that he was a he lived something like a monk you know that mm. it was something very um the power was his bling yeah power was his thing and his bling but but he's so he is very monastic monastic in his uh existence I mean, he is technically, his title in the movie is Chief Justice, you know, but he has, as you can see, taken it upon himself, you know, the presumption being he did it with Henry IV as well, but he's quickly engineered the situation when he, when he learned of Thomas's death, he quickly went to Hal, brought Hal into the fold, made himself a kind of self-appointed consigliere, you know, like a, I am your chief advisor, even though... You know, that isn't necessarily what a chief justice does. Just insinuates himself, puts himself right next to the king, is the one who's always whispering in the king's ear. And does it at very often with a great sense of um, benev- like of, of, of warmth and support, but it's always a form of manipulation. And so it's one of those things where when Pete Shibaris and I were cutting the movie, we were always like very wary of not, telegraphing the sinister aspects of William and I remember when we first started showing the movie to people we were we were like let's start with too much and see how much we need to cut back and even from the very first screenings people were like didn't you know it's not so much that you didn't see like you felt that William there was something up with him but that he wasn't necessarily the problem there are other nominal villains in the piece the archbishop and the dauphin that, but that he he is warm enough to feel like uh, someone to lean on. 
an anchor to hold on to and that Hal becomes so paranoid and isolated and paranoid that he needs someone to to cling to and William is that obvious person lots of conversations with Timmy about you know at what point do you at what point does he become king really you know is it when his father dies is it when he's <laughs> half nude and getting oiled up by the uh, by the um, bishops is it um is it when he's at his coronation dinner you know kind of um hosting a crowd of noble men and women you know, because he wanted, he needed to know when do I start asserting myself properly, uh, and for us it was all for me it was always clear that it needed it was this moment it was the moment where he 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 gave in to his paranoia, mm -hmm. the moment he actually orders the execution of his uh, cousin is the moment he assumes power proper. And assumes it in an almost tragically inevitable way, a ruthless way. An advanced party to hell is another great, like, line. And it's also, it's the beginning of, of, of his sort of journey towards becoming a tyrant. Mm. This, this shot really shocked me the first time I saw it. This one? Well, I mean, not this shot. <laughs> the upcoming... Like chop. It was his last day. I was not certain. Like, let's just do it for real. <laughs> let's just do it. He's like, I'm down. I'm a method actor. Yeah, <laughs> and I've I've had a good run. Like, <laughs> I've had a good run. This shot here with Timmy, as I'm so glad, just a little bit of cloud came over, just enough. When every every time we tried to do this shot, the sun was so bright he couldn't. He just, <gasps> that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oof. So just great. a tiny bit of cloud for five minutes and we could do a take where he uh, could just keep his eyes open. This is uh, a beautiful medieval chapel in um, that we have digitally restored somewhat uh, in at Haddon Hall. Where is Haddon Hall? Oh, don't ask me that. Okay. Somewhere in England. Somewhere in I England. actually I lost all sense of bearing in... Uh, in in England, we were all over the place. Mm. Maybe I should have done a bit of research before coming in to do this. <laughs> That's okay. It's mm. a lot of candles in there. I just can't stop calculating the cost of these candles. Yeah, the people. <laughs> yeah. I'm that person that, like, in superhero movies, I'm calculating the like risk assessment oh, insurance right. and stuff. That's me. Yeah, so in a way, one of the obviously one of the key differences between, you know, we we in we knew that we were going to steal certain things from Shakespeare, you know, just a few key things. One of them obviously being Joel's character Falstaff here, and that in order to, one of the key things we did that was a departure was have Hal go, you know, rather than become king and just abandon his old fat drinking buddy, to actually go and once he realized how alone he was feeling to go and seek him out again, you know, knowing so, and to, and we knew we needed to take him to France basically. And so you you can't take the Orson Welles version of, uh, I mean, the, you can't take the super fat, vain, buffoon, incompetent drunkard 
to France in any con- without Hal appearing foolish. So we needed to set up a, a false staff that was still very physically capable, still very um, um, that had like known lauded battle experience. Um, but you still needed to doubt, you know, I mean, whether or not he still had it. Also, maybe even doubt whether or not he ever really had it, you know. Is this all just talk or was he actually once a great fighter? Um, but we knew that for this, the version of this that we wanted to tell, we needed to kind of turn it into a Falstaff redemption story to make it about this, you know, an isolated and paranoid king, but then his friendship with this old, uh, older, unreliable, washed-up knight. We shot all of this ace cheap stuff at the very end of the shoot. I think it was. It felt good to do it that way. Actually, it was good to not to start. So that uh, I mean, we're not at the start of the movie now, but most of East Cheap is at the start of the film, and it's we we felt pretty well oiled by then. I think it was good for Timmy and I too, because you know, by forging a relationship throughout other parts of the shoot, we could then go back and enjoy ourselves and enjoy each other and have a shorthand and a familiarity that suited uh, starting the film with with that relationship uh, already having some fiber to it. So, you know, while it seems unusual to say it's good to do the the beginning of the movie at the end, it really helped our on-screen chemistry, I think. This was your first day. Yeah. This is me actually taking my character for a stroll for the first time, <laughs> feeling terribly nervous. Were you? Yeah. What about? I think I was nervous that Sean was watching me like that. <laughs> like, like, he's going, how's Joel going to do this? <laughs> um, I'm always nervous in the first week. It really is like going to a new school and thinking that everybody's going to hate you and bully you. Mm. Um, and it's more about self-consciousness because you are opening your mouth with a, with a sound and an accent. If you're doing an accent, um, um, you know, it's the first fingerprint of your character on on the glass of the film, and um, you know you can. After a certain amount of days, you can keep you know finessing it, massaging it. Uh, excuse the pun. Uh, excuse the visual pun. Um, but at some point, you've set the track for what your character is. There's, there's a sort of a, a a world or a margin or or a set of colours that you're using. Um, that you can't really deviate from. So those first few days are like crucial mm. to how you uh, establish your character, how you define your part of the puzzle, um, and and what is your place in the world of the culture of the movie set as well. And so it's a very important um, few days, and so it's, it makes sense that it, it fills you with a little anxiety, and anxiety is good. And, and like I, I love Timmy saying it because I feel the same way. I'd lean into projects that are terrifying. I mean, this whole thing was terrifying to go, we're going to do this. We're going to presume to tell this story. Um, the scale of it was terrifying. Um, you know, but I think as an actor, I like to look at characters like that and go, if this doesn't frighten me in some way, I shouldn't even bother doing it. There was a scene here that we cut out, just a little piece of the scene that was Falstaff accepting a bribe from a young kind of, like some young guy who's who had been 
kind of conscripted to go and fight this war. He's trying to buy his way out. He's trying to buy his way out. Knew that Falstaff was in a position of power. We cut it out because just the rhythm of just once the war had been declared, we wanted to get there. I, I miss it a little bit because it was just added another little element to Falstaff's un- seeming untrustworthiness. Like, is this can this guy actually handle himself? But uh, it really felt like the rhythm the rhythm of the movie needed to just get on this boat. Uh, this is like this is like a replica medieval ship. That uh, is this uh, Andrew Jackson's work in the background? Yeah, so Andrew Jackson, our visual effects supervisor, was on another boat shooting us, and then we used us as for the boat. I think probably that one there that you can just see through there, um, and then a whole bunch of digital ones and stuff. I mean, I, Andrew Jackson was he's a he's actually English, but he lived in Australia for thirty years. Has moved back to London now. He worked with George Miller on Fury Road, and and for me, crucially, he worked with um, Christopher Nolan on Dunkirk, uh, and it was that work that made me really want him. I just, I you know, it's the danger with medieval movies. Very often, is they can turn into kind of fantasy cartoons. I really wanted the visual effects. Like this shot, I think, is extraordinary. Mm. It just feels organic. Um, you know, you don't. I don't. You. Don't, I don't want the visual effects to present themselves too overtly. I mean, that one obviously is one. We obviously didn't have that many ships, but... It really does feel like uh, an old-school matte painting, but mm. digital, which were also very unobtrusive. And Andrew's, Andrew's background, actually, because he's been doing it for so long, is very practical as well. About how he's, he's always thinking about how to do things in camera. Anything you can do for real is... This, for instance. I mean, we shot this in Hungary. So obviously anyone who knows their geography knows that Hungary doesn't have a coast... So we had to paint all that in. Mm. And actually, interesting to differentiate uh, what is what is uh, augmented CGI or what's CGI, what's real and what's not. Specifically, that donkey, for example, animatronic. <laughs> now, um, the what you're about to see with the trebuchets. The the one thing about the movie, I wish I could sit down next to anyone who's watching it and just go. Please don't think that these are um, computer graphic. That castle's They fake, are right? real trebuchets? They're real trebuchets. It was like talk about childhood fantasies. I've only ever seen them on the History Channel. Mm-hmm. Like someone make one and test it on a History Channel. And David had somehow through his production meetings been asked how many trebuchets do you want and figured that they won't really work. They'll just be, we'll need to put in the fireballs later and all that stuff. These things work and it was a trip and a, 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 an incredible fantasy joy to watch that happen. Do you know the Reddit um, trebuchet memes? They rank all movies and things if they have trebuchets or not and you can watch the movies that has a trebuchet. So wow. this film is cleared by trebuchet memes That's wow. cool. as a trebuchet friendly movie. Fantastic. <laughs> They're going to be excited to know these are real trebuchets. But there was too. such what? a vibe about it, the feeling, the whoosh of it, the, the the rattle afterwards. And one of the trebuchets, you know, that, there was guys on the hill hiding with fire extinguishers because the fireballs would land on the hill mm. 600 feet away. One of them would fire that far. And, you know, land on that mountain and there'd be like a little spot fire and some guy would have to run out and go... Whoosh. We we had originally planned to shoot them all just like kind of from late afternoon dusk into night, 
uh, and Adam Akapur and I just loved them so much. We we just engineered to to, sh- to do a, a whole other a whole other day of shooting them. I mean, we've we could we could have a trebuchet sequence that went for fifteen minutes if we wanted. And uh, we, we I would turn up. We would do a scene like this, and then we'd be waiting for a night scene. And it was, I think it was like four days in a row, David and Adam would go, all right, let's go shoot more trebuchets. <laughs> it was like, do you really need more? Are you just doing it because it's exciting to watch? Well, yeah. yeah. I wonder where they are now. I wanted to, I've got one in my backyard in Bondi. I wanted to. Mira and I have like got a little shack up in Queensland that we built on her parents' farm. And I was thinking, man, I'd love to take one and just stick it in the middle of a paddock. Mm. Um, just start war with your neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> There's a real spider that was on my shirt. Oh, that's terrifying. I had a good good relationship with certain um, bugs, bugs and insects in the, and tried to give them leading roles in the film. I remember Sean when we were shooting that scene was like, oh, "What? When you saw you this one, where you got a bug on your finger here?" Sean was like, "Oh, great! So the whole scene's going to be about the bug now." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a good little insult too. It's the definition of a siege. Yeah. I just love, you know, I wanted, I liked, I mean, obviously one of the things that Shakespeare could never do because he couldn't actually stage a war on stage was to to get into the business of this stuff. I mean, you know, we did a lot of research about this campaign and uh, just the, 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 the bits and pieces of uh, the idea of just having m- meetings intense about how the hell are we going to do this? Um, and, you know, it's the advantage you have as well is that in these times, the king himself would be there on the battlefield w- working it out. You know, it's not like uh, you're having to cut to the president back in the White House on a telephone. Uh, on a telephone. And important too to note, you know, the, the, the investment of the church in what was happening in terms of the mm. land, the land grab of France, um, uh, and how much of a key role that was. And then that the archbishop too would, would make the journey, um, that it's not just modern warfare where there's cannon fodder, young people being sent off to, you know, uh, take a bullet and um and get ripped apart for the sake of uh, advancement it was the the actual you know um ceos and and the rulers of the company would go i love that shot that previous one the uh just a wide shot of the surrender um i just i remember when we were on, on the day when we were shooting it it felt like some kind of uh medieval oil painting it's difficult to work out you know so medieval art obviously was very kind of dare i say primitive um uh this has a more of a renaissance quality you know but it's um so it's you know it's, it's difficult to find visual reference for the period um yeah the illuminated manuscripts of this era like some some of the art in it, you're like, yeah, this looks real, and some of it, you're like, that cat mm. is walking on its hind feet <laughs> yeah. with its head backwards. Like, yeah. what's happening? There really wasn't a sense yet in art of of uh, of any kind of sense of perspective. 
Mm-hmm. So that painting I was talking about of Henry uh, early on is very much just a profile shot. There's no sense of depth or, or um, perspective to it. I love this chair he's sitting in here. It's so big and opulent on this battlefield. It's really stuck out. Yeah, and that someone had to carry it out. Yeah, there. that's what I was thinking. Like those arms too. It's just it's a beautiful chair. So Falstaff is not is failing to contribute in any meaningful way, uh, much to Hal's annoyance. I love this cut. I, this that moon. This was a oh god, what was it? It was some kind of a oh, I can't remember. But we got a a massive six hundred mil lens to shoot this particular. It was like an eclipse or something. And, uh, <laughs> we shot like kind of we shot about four hours of the moon. <laughs> You could make a movie just called Moon and Trebuchets. Yeah. <laughs> I'd watch it. Just the moon watching Trebuchets being shot. And now the moment we've all been waiting for, which is, you know, where is the Dauphin, the giver of the ball? I love that this introduction, you can't even see his face. It's just his, like, stringy hair. The dandy psychopath is sitting in Hal's chair going through Hal's stuff. I hope that's clear. I often wonder that. It doesn't matter. Going through yeah. Hal's jewelry it's box. It's that big chair. It's, they will, people watching this will know because I pointed out the chair. Yes. <laughs> this is Goldilocks. He's sitting in my chair. So I think Rob was the first, after Joel, obviously, Rob was the first person we cast in this. I asked him very early on, like years before we actually ended up making it. And he, I think he, I just knew I want this character at this point in the movie. I think it needs a, a gear shift. I really wanted Rob to have fun with it too. I wanted the character, his job principally is just to annoy Hal, to taunt him and to taunt him in an almost empty way. Uh, to the extent that this catastrophe has been created by young men, um, rubbing their egos against one another. Um, it felt actually important to me that the that the taunting be almost uh, juvenile. Um, you know, like literally about dick size. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted Rob to I wanted Rob to inject some some larger than life color. And you'd worked with him on the rover. Yeah, previously. I just think he's amazing. I, 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 I've, and given where we know he came from, you know that, uh, you know the uh, 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 the golden handcuffs of a giant franchise. His choices since that have been just extraordinary, I reckon. Which is all obviously a testament to his to his taste as a human, you know, he knows the kinds of things he wants to do. He knows the filmmakers he wants to work with. He knows the challenges that will be interesting to take on. He made uh, Little Ashes before Twilight and that, but it came out during Twilight where he plays Salvador Dali. And it's anyone who did, who saw that kind of can see where he was headed because that's mm. a really unhinged movie. He's incredible. And his, his characters are all, he's, he's got this sort of uh, smorgasbord of, varied characters that he's rolled out in the last handful of years and they're all incredible and very well studied um what's interesting too about you know 
Rob gives Hal and us as an audience someone to you know someone to root against, um, and a reason for to root for England, even though they're invading another country. It's like we want you to win just to get rid of this dude, <laughs> um, that is there to antagonise. Um, and the, you know, in real life, I think the French really underestimated the English. The English turned up; they took half Fleur, and the French hadn't quite assembled themselves yet. And the problem with the delay and the journey was that the longer they took to get uh, to Paris or to, to take the, the centre of France was that the, Eng the French were going to amass a bigger army. Um, and yeah, the, the Burgundians and the Armagnacs were kind of fighting amongst each other, but they would start to sort it out and get to and actually kind of form an alliance. And, uh, and meanwhile, the English were getting sick um, they, they weren't as well stocked with food. They were, you know, men were getting dysentery. So their numbers were sort of dwindling as the French were starting to organize themselves. Um, and that the timing of Agincourt, not just what happened there, but the timing of it and the amassment of the army and when those two ar um, armies came together um, was, uh, was part of why it's written down in the history books is, is, is the battle that it is. Um, the English being outweighed, outnumbered, having the downslope, all that stuff. But, you know, the fear in Howl at the moment is if we wait, we are potentially going to get overrun. Was that the archbishop being carried in the... In his caboose, yeah. or whatever the hell that thing's called? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's in a way, you know, it's like they're kind of... The Dauphin and the archbishop are almost kind of absurd. They're almost like mustache twirling villains, but they, what they do is they allow us to distract attention from the true evil, which is William, you know, the, or the, 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 the more, the more insidious kind of manipulative forces. One thing I think that's really great in this, in terms of medieval story world setting is how many children yeah. are in these really terrible, you know, jobs. Yeah, it seems irresponsible, doesn't it? There'd be child protection laws to, <laughs> now, to stop yeah. that from happening today. But yeah, the they figure very highly in the play. Um, you know, the boys were there to service, um, the, the literally doing what they're doing here, gathering food, food, water, carry things, help the men dress in armor. They obviously weren't going to fight in the battlefield on the battlefield. It just shows how different modern society is with. Um, Children like these soldiers are just stabbing them, and that was uh, Steve Dent, the wonderful stunt coordinator and horse master's son, taking an arrow for the team. Yeah, I love his little cuffs right there. So dainty. This is little Bardo. He was great. Um, I mean, you know, he's so young. He just has had, he, you know, he was, he, you know, you audition kids and some of them are kind of got a whole kind of dazzling kind of show of jazz hands. But, uh, you know, you can always tell a kid who's actually working with, an, with imaginative stuff, who's imagining uh, the situation that he's in. Yeah, this was another shot that really shocked me the first time I watched was not expecting this reveal. No. Yuck. 
Um, yeah. Another one of my favorite insults is about to come up. There's so many good insults in this movie. <laughs> like, I'm just going to talk in the king insults <laughs> here forward. <laughs> you know, we had Joel lying on the ground there to, you know, just as a little, just as a little nod to his, you know, his, his creaking bones. You know, he's only, he's only in his forties and yet, you know, he's basically an old man in this world. Um, and Hal is starting to come apart at the seams. Yeah, this is our sort of uh, potential breakup here. We've got the, you know, the interesting sort of call to account of like, what, what is your actual value here? You're supposedly a great man. What, what is your value? Yeah. I mean, and Falstaff has come on this journey because, you know, he he does he does treasure the friendship, but also cuz he wanted the hot tub and the feet mm. the foot rubs and the, he wants he wanted to be back in the world of nobility, but now he's there on a battlefield. He's out there on a campaign. He's doing the thing he swore he would never do again. Um I will disembowel you right here with my own <laughs> hand. Is, mm-hmm. I'm going to say that to my cat every time oh, she like disobeys me. I'm not going to say that to my now cat. Now that you say it, it reminds <laughs> me of those sort of mar- that martial arts move that I've seen in a movie mm. where someone just goes, like puts their hand into a man's chest and yeah, pulls, pulls their heart out. <laughs> me being drunk. Which I've had lots of experience at. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We had a scene here where this extended this scene where you did a whole impersonation of the Archbishop with a big ridiculous lisp and you put a bucket on your head like a bishop's mitre. It just felt... Uh, unnecessary as good as it was as fun as it, it was, was too good it was too good I'm gonna take it out it'll be on the um, my version of my my edit of the movie <laughs> <laughs> which is just Falstaff Moon and Trebuchet's <laughs> uh, that's it's actually one of the most interesting things about making a movie that that's um, you know you can call it a frustration or you can just call it a good learning experience is that as much as you think a screenplay is as airtight as you could have made it and that everything is essential, then you go and shoot the film and you find out in the edit room that you were wrong and that certain things are repeated moments or they slow the film down, as you mentioned earlier, about uh, certain aspects that you can that end up on the cutting room floor. And it's heartbreaking um, for certain reasons. Um but necessary for the whole music of the film. I mean, the the rhythm of the film. And very rarely does it work the other way, but almost never. But it actually kind of weirdly, if I, I think about it with the Rover, it kind of does for me. I almost, like that was an experiment for me in writing something as minimal as possible. 
and there are, I think there's only one deleted scene in that thing, but there's actually a bunch of instances where I go, actually, if I were to go back and do it again, I'd probably write a bit more stuff. This field, I just talk, I'm just talking secondhand, um, you know, Agincourt, the topography of it is very specific. And again, it, it's, I mean, the, the actual place is a character in history because of, you know, that landscape was, was sort of key to so, much, so many things that transpired uh, in the battle. David scouted that location in three hours north of Budapest when it was covered in snow and had to have the foresight to go, yes, I think this is Zagincourt. I think there's a field under all this. It was... you know, but the flanking of the forests, um, the undulation of the field, the clear field, um, was perfect for it. It was amazing that he could see that under 10 foot of snow. It was perfect for what we wanted. I don't know that it's exactly like the actual battlefield at Agincourt. I think that the actual battle at Agincourt was uh, flatter and a bit narrower. I mean, that's one of the most people died at Agincourt. Um, I actually just want to, before we go, we've got plenty of time to talk about it. I just want to do a little shout out to Stephen Elder here as Dorset. You know, mm-hmm. I really wanted, um, you know, again, there's so many great actors in England. Um, but occupying that role of the kind of, you know, experienced but slightly ineffectual kind of military nobleman uh, who, who um, just is always struggling to be heard. Um, but yeah, most people who died at Agincourt died in by being trampled and drowned in a kind of uh, a sort of like a stadium crush which was actually very much product of how narrow the field was they just threw all their guys in at once and there, there are things you can see watch them on youtube these kind of forensic archaeological expeditions the actual battlefield working out what the mud would have been like in certain rain conditions mm-hmm. and then what happens when you stick a a kind of an armored foot into that mud, how difficult it is to pull it out again, um, as opposed to a cloth shoe, which most of the most of the English would have been wearing, or a leather shoe. I mean, this is out. That all of that obviously was kind of accidental. We've turned this English victory into a, a kind of a stroke of Falstaffian genius, you know. His his prescience, his 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 foreseeing the coming of the rain and the mud and all that kind of stuff, which apparently was all actually true, and the primary contributor to how the English won. But we've turned it into a uh, a full staff. I like that thing about the knee. That's really true about people with um, aches and. Well, what's interesting about that is. I have a bad knee and in the winter it does become like a problem for me. And that bad knee I got from doing a hundred plus performances where I did a fight scene with Hotspur and used to get knocked down and land on this, on my right knee. And my knee became so swollen, but I was 24 years old. I was like, ah, but, you know, you just think you're unbreakable. And I, for six months, had one leg that was just swollen and bigger than the other one. And my bad knee stems back to that production. 
And and I believe that about weather and bones. I have a pacemaker and it itches, like the scar itches when like the day before it rains, I think from the Really? Yeah, the energy in the air or something. Yeah. Well, animals yeah. animals sense weather. They yeah. can herald the weather. And it would be and at a animals. time it'd be at a time when they wouldn't quite understand that here, so I could see why mm. they wouldn't believe Falstaff. I think there's a sense of him being facetious too that I think he's got a feeling like there's mm. a better than average chance that those heavy clouds outside <laughs> mean that it could rain and that if we do, it, it's going to work to our advantage. And um, he enjoys screwing with Dorset because he knows how much Dors Dorset is one of these men of war inventing work for themselves, how much Dorset desperately wants to be heard. I think Falstaff just likes screwing with him. But he knows it to be true. Holding this... Uh, fire poker stick here you know, I was felt like I was finally getting to play Yoda in a movie <laughs> <laughs> this is my my, you my remember tribute when, to Yoda when we shot this you can't see it but it had actually been raining like crazy all day and it was just so desperately important to me that you not be able to tell that Falstaff had said, I'm pretty sure it's going to rain. It's like, how do you know? Well, because it's bucketing down right now. <laughs> yeah. This scene was, so one of the big challenges for us in writing this thing, you know, just, you know, I, we, we, I keep saying it, but we push Shakespeare to the side very early on. Never felt like we were, never felt like we were in competition. Never felt like we were trying to replicate passages anywhere. But obviously the big speech, the next before the battle at um, at Agincourt, you know, known as the St. Crispin's Day speech. Well, that was one moment where I think we both were like, oh, okay, what are, we, what are we doing here? It's such a famous Shakespearean speech. We knew we wanted to do our own thing. What are we going to try and write one as good or better? That's not going to happen. But the thing that, the, the, the way through it for us was to, um, to get, was to undermine it and it we undermine it um with this line here from Falstaff if you can't tell them why you're here tell them a magnificent lie to plant the seed in Hal's head that this speech he's delivering to these troops is empty uh um it's powerfully it's powerfully delivered and he hopes that it lands in some way but I, somehow having that little piece of of of, of our invention l felt liberating uh, to me, anyway, mm. um, just in terms of letting us off the hook. This didn't have to be the great rousing speech. It had to, it had to have some power. It had to be powerfully delivered. But actually, what makes it interesting is that it's kind of empty. That Hal doesn't even necessarily believe it himself, but he knows it has to be given. This uh, score here really starts to remind me a bit of the Thin Red Line and the sort of Great War score feel. Ah, the Great Hans Zimmer score you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It has a very similar sort of buildup of the drama before the battle here. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's... Um, I find this whole sequence quite uh, quite moving. Obviously, music has a lot to do with that. Yeah, the beautiful Rattel. Already 
planting himself in the world in such a major way in such a short space of time. Mm. It's crazy Nick telling us the other night at a dinner that he quit his, he had an actual job and he quit it back in 2010. Yeah, he was a trader, currency trader. Currency trader. What? And, and composing of an evening and, <laughs> you know, playing in concerts and doing stuff. But he had a job in a finance company. And he was good at it. I just think, I think you, you and Timmy are both so good in this scene. You know, this is the... Uh, this is Falstaff's redemption. I love. I, it was a nightmare for the sound team, but I was, I, I was glad that I, you know, caught you to get be getting dressed in your real suit of armor there. Um, mm. You know, quite a, you, to fight, you have to make these polyurethane replicas that you cast from, but you have to kind of make the real suit first, and you know, did it and did it quite, did it very traditionally too. Made this suit. Um, but it means that, you know, you're clanking and clonking the whole way through this scene. But it's just, uh, yeah, I remember, I remember finding this scene very moving when we were shooting it. This scene actually reminds me, and it's something that you do very well, David does very well, is, you know, um, relationships between men, um, that, uh, friendships or bonds that, hit these breaking moments in this this is a goodbye of sorts um and it reminded me also of doing the scene with ben in animal kingdom when when i tell him that i can't be in the game anymore Mm -hmm. and it felt always we talked about it always like it was the two of us breaking up Mm. um that where that bond has to break you know and and that's why that scene felt um like it had such an emotional weight to it given what we've come through with those two. Yeah, and it requires actors, you know, to, like, to lean into that, to lean into the love story of it. <clears throat> talking about chairs. Yeah. Talking about furniture. There you go, look at that chair. Man holding a peacock feather for no reason whatsoever. That's what people did. Also says Dr. Hugh. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> uh, you going to war? Yeah, Pierre. Pierre's going to war. What's his job? Oh, he's, he's, he's been promoted to the peacock feather guy. Mm. <laughs> Him calling English simple and ugly, another lovely insult. Yeah, I love that he says, no, I joy to speak English, and then follows it with another insult, yeah. I love the way Adam has shot this stuff. It's... Uh... Um, especially these Timmy ones, they're just uh, so beautifully monochromatic. And it also says something interesting about the nature of um, the etiquette and gallantry, the rules of engagement is that he can ride up on his own and have a conversation. Which he most surely wouldn't have done. Uh, well, he would he have would sent have, an envoy. He would have sent an envoy and then gone with a whole entourage and stuff. But this our howlers, he wants to go alone. Apparently this is, it, it's actually true that um, Henry V did challenge the Dauphin to a one-on-one. Um, but knew it was more, it was a kind of, it was a posturing move more than anything else. He kind of knew he would be refused the Dauphin was uh, quite a bit younger, I think, than Rob was, and and like f- fat and absurd. Uh, 
but I, I there's something I, I very much like that a, a move as big as this one going over to the other side and saying, I mean, the Dauphin wasn't actually at Agincourt. That's another of our inventions. But um, in the lead up to Agincourt, how Henry V did challenge him to a one-on-one. And, you know, it's the, ba- it's the B side to him trying to save his brother. And in some ways, he's not only trying to save England and all those men, but save me. Save Falstaff mm. um, from the hairbrain scheme that surely is going to get me. Uh... That he's accepting responsibility for it as well. It's like, I'm, we're here now and we're doing this. And yes, there were reasons. And yes, there are people supporting me. But I'm the one who has to accept responsibility for the fact that some kind of hell is about to unfold here. And, and I don't know that I fully believe in that hell. And there are the longbow men. Um, arguably, well, one of the one of the reasons why the English dominated the battle is the, the the fact that the men had the longbows and the French had the crossbows. The simple virtue of the fact that the longbow could travel further than a crossbow bolt, and that you could load it much faster. Yeah, I think Hugh was saying that they were. The word was that the men. The longbowmen actually have to be trained. You, the, the poundage on them is so intense. Um, hopefully, people who appreciate Trevor Jones will also appreciate <laughs> this: is that you know any normal person can't just pull back a longbow, and that their anatomy, when they've gone into the soil and found bones of uh, English soldiers who were longbowmen, their right uh, shoulder joints were like different to their left; that they'd form these like extra strong joints that bolt could travel the length of a, a u.s football field like 300 yards or something and it was about a meter long and when it came down it had such power and energy behind it that pierced armor uh, and those men could fire off uh 12 arrows uh per minute was it per minute i don't know it might have even been, been more, than, more that. than that you know not as many as uh, in um, the recent Robin Hood movie. <laughs> Taron, beautiful Taron. He fires off uh, like a machine gun. Yeah, I was really taken by the detail of the weaponry in this sequence. Like so many different kinds of weapons. And again, you know, great tribute to uh, the ability to take 300 men and turn it in turn them into thousands um, through visual effects in a way that doesn't stand out in that cartoony way that David was talking about one of the keys to that is I think that you know kind of working out how we wanted to keep this battle sequence in the language of the rest of the movie and not you know it's like wanting to keep the camera as much as possible at human eye level you take advantage of the topography, you know, like in that previous wide shot and then this one coming up where you can still get kind of high angle shots because you're actually up on a hill with a human. But keeping the camera as wherever possible off cranes and off drones and all that, that stuff that just, it's so easy to resort to that stuff, but wanting whatever possible to make the experience of this battle feel like a human experience. Um, but that also, that I think helps disguise the visual effects 
because they are then more often than not things that are happening in the in the you're filling out the deep background rather than painting stuff right in right in foreground an interesting fact too um Hugh the Dr Hugh was telling us that the 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 real noblemen that they would have gone in because I often thought oh shouldn't my armor have more cuts and chinks and dints in it he said no after after each battle be like you know, if you got your car scratched and you're a banker, you'd go and get put it in the shop and get it panel beaded and um, repainted and sprayed. And you would go, and your armor was so important to you, you would maintain it that these guys would turn up f- with fresh armor and mm. be like, you know, repurposed but fresh looking. Your brother Nash did this archer stuff. Yeah, he's directing uh, second unit for us, and. Um, we offloaded. I mean, we asked him to do to do the archers. God, this stuff though was horrible. And a lot shit. of these sort of, you know, some of these gags, individual gags that sort of help fill out certain elements of the battle. Because David had two weeks, two and a bit weeks, to do the whole Battle of Agincourt, which is just so huge. That's my stunt guy, by the way. Shout out to him for taking a hit of a horse. Oh was it a real horse? He did it yeah. three times. No, he did it like six times. Wow. He, uh, poor guy had to have the same haircut as me, which he complained about. Do and they have uh, like special horses for battle sequences? They train them to do things that other horses aren't used to doing. I mean, they definitely train them to fall over and be okay with falling over and, and, um, you know, being around objects that normally like spook another horse, like mm. swords being flung around and, and so on. Um, but that's, you know, that's Steve Dent and his team and these incredible Spanish guys that he works with, these incredible Hungarian guys that came um, that are like horse whisperers. Um, Making this mud was surprisingly easy. We had so many production meetings about how to achieve it and how what kind of machinery we were going to need and all that kind of stuff. And then... I. And I'm sure we were prepared to do that. And Steve Dent was the one who said, you soak the ground and give me 10 minutes with uh, even just 30 of my horses and I'll make you a mud pit. And sure enough, it was, you just soak the ground for a bit, run the horses over it for 10 minutes. And the next thing you know, you've got this thick, disgusting mud that... uh, This is what I call no acting required. Um, Like moments of great joy and you know like getting to do this but but also horrible moments of real fear there's a crane shot there's one the only one almost in this sequence and and then i discovered way late that apparently there's a shot almost identical to it in game of thrones in the battle of the thrones (laughs) i had actually watched the battle of the bastards but i had i was i can't believe no one pointed it out to me until the thing was finished um yeah, when there was some sort of inference that David had, like, you know, aped uh, the, the um, what do you call it, Game of Thrones, I was like, what well, do you really think we had, like, a spy in their edit room? Like, <laughs> we were shooting this probably before... No, no, no. Or... No, no, no. Battle of Us is before us. Oh, right. Um, but, yeah, it was just... Uh... It was like, it's just the irony is it's the one time I kind of, I went, oh, okay, this is a crane shot that feels justified. Turns out it's a, it's ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stolen one. Oh, 
some of this horse, isn't it? Alright, here come the hammer gang. So again, we've turned this, we've 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 imagined this to be some kind of strategic conceit that all that they've run in very lightly armored rather than heavy suits, but uh apparently, you know, that was just the way it worked. You know, if you were the the English were outnumbered, not only outnumbered, but they also their 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 full armored knights were were even more proportionally outnumbered. The English ran out on the field. Their archers and and less more lightly armored men at arms, and not knowing that that was actually going to be advantageous to them, not being uh, fully armored, because it would allow that if you were wearing a full suit of armor. Uh, and you fell over in that mud, you weren't getting back up again. But if you had on just, you know, kind of a, a lighter, uh, you had on lighter clothing, you could, you could conceivably get yourself back up again. And you could move more nimbly and, and, and find the cutting points, you know, find the places to just insert your, your dagger. Um, oh, man. I'm getting PTSD watching I know, it's horrible. in the mud. You're probably getting PTSD from shot selection and just watching the day-to-day mess going on. This was it was really tough, like tough in every like tough to tough to like tough to plan, tough to shoot, tough to edit, tough to sound mix. Uh, every aspect of it makes me feel sick watching it. And I just love how scrappy this is and how scrappy a fighter it is. If you hear Timmy talk about you know, like early on there was choreography for fights and that's usually the way fight choreography starts is it feels a little too neat and polished and David, you know, rightfully was like, all right, this needs to mess up. It needs to feel like exhausted men doing, you know, like just grappling and finding their way and looking for something to get an advantage on. And Timmy really leaned into that, you know, he's, he, he, as he says, he, his physical frame doesn't make you conjure up images of a capable warrior. Um, but being a great soldier isn't about um, frame so much as it is about intention and heart and purpose. And, he, you know, he he's his own version of a warrior in, in the way he leans in and gets into the, into the fray and scraps on, you know. For the mud on his face, is this real mud or makeup mud or a mixture of? Oh, that's real. It's there's uh, no way. It's Ma- Max Factor. Uh, <laughs> Max Factor. I mean, you never know. <laughs> um, listen, you know, I hate to say this, and you know, it makes sense. People probably already think this, but you know, that mud's all like there are horses running around in there peeing, crap, or like, you, you know, it was dirty mud. That's oh, it's really st- and it's it was. 40 degrees uh, oh. Celsius, but like 110, 115 Fahrenheit. So it was getting, it stank. It, it really smelled bad. And we'd have to, it got so actually kind of like health hazard, biohazardy that we'd then have to like just move the whole thing over to another patch and do the horses and the soak down again. And by the end of it, we'd kind of practically destroyed this, uh, this field. drowning him in the mud it's just like you know whatever works that was sort of one of the theories to looking at this battle was like whatever works if you're pushing someone's face into the mud and squashing them was the way to 
to win. That was the way to do it. And strangely, it's like, so there's also, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite sure that a, a, a true medieval battle um, would have had um, a, a kind of clear parameters, sets of rules, um, sh- you know, chivalric rules or whatever, but that you, that, you know, there would be very often in these battles, they would go for hours. You can't just fight like a madman straight for hours on end, especially wearing this stuff. You'd just be too exhausted. So I'm sure there were, there were ways in which things were broken up, you know, kind of individual one-on-one fights between noblemen would take place. That there were guys whose sole job it was to hold a flag with heraldry on it somewhere and that that was their job is a clear indicator that a true medieval battle probably wasn't as like just wildly chaotic as this. And yet, given what we know of how the French or, you know, most people died in a crush and there must have been some level of complete mayhem to it. At some point, yeah. Is this uh, Pattinson actually falling in the mud or a stunt? We did one, some some with him and some with his stunt double and Rob's ones are the ones that are in the movie because, you know, the the stunt double who was very excellent but just they felt a little too kind of circus performer. Rob, you know, Rob's acting in there. This is a moment that's sort of yours for the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, definitely. There was always also that feeling like we don't the right... I mean, I kind of love that you know, we'd co- there was a fight choreograph for, for them to have a battle that just sort of like head towards something the audience has an expectation of and then just do something different, you know, when, when Rob sloops around in the mud there. And then when the men come to get him, my feeling always was that there was a justification in that in the sense that a lot of those men, I always imagined those men are the men whose children had been killed mm. uh, in that forest. Even though in probably that they, yeah, that, that we're, we're treating it as an act of like a, a kind of uh, emotional aberration, you know, that act, but really the Dauphin would have been too valuable to to I'm, just murder most, a lot, you know, they would have taken him hostage and ransomed him off heavily. I read he maybe died of dysentery. How like, did? Was it Howl that died? So did the Dauphin? The age of 32. Uh, probably everyone died of yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how the dolphin died. Mm. I really don't know. No, the um, and also I it did really feel like once we'd planned and choreographed and done all this stuff for that battle, it's like then you get to the end and then the you know, what we call the dolphin turns up, and um, and they were going to have Hal and he were going to have a one on one fight, and it just really felt like I've seen enough. I've had enough fighting. I love the idea in falling over a because Joel said it was unexpected, but also because it becomes the final kind of realization of Falstaff's plan. You know that it's the mud that he's wearing this ridiculous suit of armor and he can't even stand up in the mud. Mm. Uh, oh man, this is again testament to Timmy. This was this whole sequence, whole battle, including this stuff. It, every single part of it was shot so quickly. Um, you know, especially when the light's going down and the sun's going down as it here, as it is here, you know, it's like, he was like, uh, you know, he could feel the pressure we were all under and he's like, okay, just give me a second to get myself ready. Comes in, does it. We get like two goes at it and then we're, and then we're out. 
I've spoken to a number of people who who uh, expected in this moment when Timmy's sitting next to me for me to suddenly take a big gasp of breath <laughs> yeah. there and be like, oh, uh, come back to life or, you know. This is the, and then this is the last full real kind of piece of his transformation into being a king. You know, Henry V apparently famously did order the execution of his French prisoners. Um, Out of know. fear that there would be a regrouping, that, it, mm. that if they were freed or liberated in some way, um, or but, organize themselves, you know. Yeah, but that's still, you know, basically it was a, you know, a revenge uh, right. and a, and something that we would, some even back then, kind of akin to a war crime, you know. Um, oh, definitely. Uh, and also, fam- so in and in and and that execution is both historically accurate and appears in Shakespeare's plays. But famously, was left out of the Laurence Olivier version of the film, in which was made during World War Two, almost you know, with as a at, with Churchill's backing as a kind of morale booster for the English, and it, they just obviously didn't think it would be cool <laughs> to have uh, their heroic leader commit a major war crime at the end of the film. This is a wonderful French actor named Thibaut de Montalembert, uh, King Charles. Uh, the French king was famously kind of mad. Um, he thought he was made of glass. He had suits, kind of scaffolded, scaffolded outfits built so that in case he bumped into anything, he wouldn't shatter. Um, but apparently he was much loved too, and he would waver in and out of his madness. And um, And when he was having an episode... The, his kind of entourage would take care of things for him and wait for him to come come good again and I loved the idea of Thibaut Thibaut's playing it as though yes there's something definitely odd about this guy but actually underneath it is stuff that's quite wise he says something that may seem quite crazy back then like I don't want to sit in the sun for too long because I think because it's quite dangerous and then 600 years later we know that to be true you know <clears throat> Well, we do in Australia anyway. <laughs> the King of France invented sunscreen. <laughs> but he's so beautiful. I, I, this is one of the days, obviously, where I, I'm not uh, on the call sheet. Um, and I happen to be at the location and I just got mesmerised watching behind the monitor and watched a number of his takes. Um, I just think he's so beautiful. The performance is so divine. As David said, it sort of straddles this really interesting, um, hard to stick landing of kind of dignity and, and wisdom, but a, a kind of madness as well. Yeah, and a, 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 quite a few other actors I tested that were kind of very interesting and great actors, but the the, the version of Charles was too mental, too too um, too unhinged, too crazy. I, I quite like there's a, there's a sadness to his madness. Yeah. Um, that but a resignation as well. You know that this is it's it's tragic that this has happened, but it's happened many times before, and it's going to keep happening for centuries to come. And I love, I love this. There's the essence of what he's saying here too. So, such an interesting theme, generally, anyway. That that it it reflects uh, 
but ex- expresses it in different ways. The, the difficulty of holding on to humanity while being the boss. But when he brings it back to family, I think it's such a divine um, thing and the way, the way it's handled. But it, it, it does remind you where this has all come from. Um, a young man trying to sort of outshine his father in, in some respects is part of his engine. His commitment to the back, like, of his character, when he's yeah. like that. It's, Sean's. Yeah. The posture, he's yeah. He's got that posture no matter what. That you And that you would have. And again, I actually think this is, it has something beautifully true to the period or whatever, but you, I look at Sean and I go in this, as this character, in this costume, makeup, everything, and go, you would, I have no idea how old he is. Is he... Is he 45? Is he 55? Is he 70? Yeah. There's something we discussed early on too, is like, you know, everybody else hits the battlefield. Um, the Archbishop doesn't enter the battlefield and William doesn't enter the battlefield. And there was something about wanting a, a physical aspect to him that you go, okay, yeah, and there's something about his posture that answers that question as well. Even though Sean in real life is probably fitter than all of us. Yeah. We got lucky this day shooting. We shot this the same day we shot the other boat stuff, but it was, we just had this beautiful giant blanket, this scrim of cloud that was there all day long. That was in Wales. Yeah. Little shout out here as well to Philip Roche, who plays the Lord Chamberlain. Again, another actor with just a beautifully strange quality, like really wonderful actor. And and uh, and and just a strangeness, an otherworldliness that this, I think, the movie needed. Um, I'm just going to talk briefly here before we watch this incredible performance by Lily Rose Depp of... You know, again, like talking about doing the plays and part of a, a good justification even for separating from the text was that this scene exists as a different in a different way at the end of Henry V as a courtship. And it, it it's funny in a way that is like a palate cleanser to all the drama of war before it. But it's very dated in its power dynamics of male-female power dynamics and also you're talking about a princess whose country's just been overrun and she sort of flirts and coquettishly sort of falls in love with the prince and it just didn't really feel right to us no i mean it felt it it felt virtually i think virtually unmakeable in that form you know uh and instead you get sort of a marriage of minds in this version that is really wonderful yeah, I mean, and also, you know, I'm the, to the extent that I'm able to observe patterns in the things that I've made before, you know, there are, I, I make these worlds about, kind of, I make these movies that are about kind of worlds of delusional, hubristic, or just naive men kind of real, coming to realize that they're wrong about everything. And quite often, there the women in these these kind of toxic male worlds are are, ju- are just on the periphery, watching it from the outside. They've been forced to the periphery, watching it from the outside, and calling truth to power. You know, and it's like 
and I'm realizing, you know, it's like, well, that's kind of what Tilda Swinton does and um, Meg Tilly in War Machine and Gillian Jones in The Rover, uh, a little bit Susan Pryor's character. Um, and in this one, you know, you've got Tara Fitzgerald and Thompson McKenzie and Lily Rose. Do, and it just seemed to work beautifully to the extent that this is a movie about a young guy, kind of a naive guy thinking with with great honorable intention letting himself surrendering himself to the machine of power still thinking he's making the choices that needed to be made and then you get to the end and have someone who's observing this stuff from the outside she doesn't know exactly what has gone on inside the english court but she knows you know she can tell she knows she knows she knows the effect that her brother would have had on him this is where I love when the you know we bring back that infamous ball and in in one moment it does so much it we see Timmy as a boy again mm -hmm. a petulant and I wanted him to stay so we shot this in a way where he we we only we keep him in mid shot or we didn't I mean we shot it all different ways but we cut it to keep him in mid shot so he feels small he feels like a boy. The way he's sitting is a bit boyish. Let her get. Let Lily Rose have the the big close-ups. Um, but keep him smaller in frame right up until the very last close-up of his, which is this profile where you just in his in his head having his world turn upside down. But then take him into the next scene with William and almost immediately have Timmy sit into a close-up. Now we're in his head and things are starting to harden again and he's trying to take control of his world back. You really know what you're talking about. Oh, None you know, of this is accidental. I, I thought the, you were just What like... is the point of these things? <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's great hearing you talk about it. It's interesting doing these things because I learned something about approach, you know, because you go in and do these things and, you know, having not been in the edit room, it's great to hear you just say that because it makes sense and I'm going to steal that at some point. You're welcome. Apology accepted. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I say all that and he walks into a wide shot, um, but then sits into a mid I think, and then the next one will be a close. Um, Have you seen this movie before? Yeah, I can't remember. Where's it? <laughs> Boy becomes king, has a few laughs. I forget how it ends. There we go. Um, this was a hard day. This was one of those scenes that you know we could all feel was th these the scenes. Flag the flag in the ground. The flag in the ground. The white whale, as you call it. Mm. Um, you know, but it also, and for good reason, you know, it's like we, in a way, the Battle of Agincourt has happened. The movie's sort of over-ish. And yet we have, if you include Charles, um, we've got three pretty long dialogue scenes back to back uh, that go for like 15 minutes. It's like if these scenes don't land in some way, then it's really, we're, we're, we're in trouble. Um and it really felt so important to all of us that this scene, these scenes work. Um, and we carried, we carried that 
anxious energy into a a a, a, a tense room and it made it you know i love shooting great actors just talking to each other in a room but every now and then it can get you can just everyone's bringing their tension into the room yeah i can't remember when the stool thing happened hmm I can't remember where in the process the stool idea presented itself. It was very early on, I remember, because we always had William sort of getting kitted out, you know, he's, he's basically, you know, getting his uh, garments ready for the for the ticker tape parade. Yeah. Um, and this idea of being made to stay up on the stool, I remember that from the very beginning incarnation of the scene. And um, that... Uh, he died in a very different way. Spoilers, obviously, if you, you know, I'm, we, we, we've, we've done this whole commentary under the caveat that people are generally listening if they've already seen the film through without hearing us, blah, blah, blah. If you've gone and watched the movie without have, if you listen to this without having actually already watched the movie, then... Uh, we don't like you. Then you're, you, are, you are nothing to me. <laughs> and we've <laughs> spoiled I don't understand everything. why you would do that. But, this um, uh, stool reminds me of punishment they do in like schools, like in Jane Eyre, it's a whole part in Jane Eyre where she has to stay on a stool for a whole day. Yeah. It's very similar to that. Um, I like the idea of keeping him trapped in a spot, though, you know, and that Hal is in control of him almost for the first time in the movie. Yeah, it's the first time he's really kind of given him orders um, and that it, it, it raises the tension of being talked down to, even though he's being looked up at. Um, but the way that we initially imagined him, uh, you know, taking William out was very different and I, I really like what it is now. Do you remember? It was going to be strangling him mm. with a scarf or something, but uh, which would have had the, you know, the its own its own power. I just wanted, I just didn't want to drag that stuff out. I liked the immediacy, the sudden impulsive decision to kill someone and then, and then, you know, it's an, it's, it's murder, you know, it, William's a bad guy, but is this a legitimate murder? I mean, I really love the way Sean's playing the scene. It's a difficult line to tread. William's too stupid to let himself get fully caught in a in a kind of semantic exercise or whatever. Um, and so, at some point in the scene, when he starts to realise what how he's what how and why he's being interrogated, he starts to want to assert his right to have lied. You know, he he wants to be able to say. All right, I'll play the game with you. But I will. I will make the denials, and I will play the game because I can see why you you will find that you will need that. But I'm not going to apologize for having lied to you because I have given I have given you greatness. You know. Yeah. And I, then he explodes, and then he explodes there when confronted, and that that's the first time in the movie he loses control, William, mm. and it's that's the moment he signs his death warrant you know what I mean that's the he knows it he knows he's made a terrible mistake and we talked at length about this scene that as much as we're kind of you know unmasking William here and his agenda and kind of creating a, a villain and a twist at the same time that everything he says is true is true mm-hmm. and you could believe him and you could understand why he doesn't think he's done anything really essentially wrong. He's done, he's performed good politics in his mind. 
You know, the sound of peace. I love it. I think that. I that, think. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say. I just think. I think Sean's Sean is great. I think Timmy's amazing in this scene. You yeah. Know, this is. I. 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 I feel. I. I. I felt great joy cutting this scene. You know, because it's Timmy's so. He's. He's. It's so. It's such a mature performance. Yeah, you know? it's dexterous and still at the same time. Mm. Uh, it's it's very muscular in its in its effortlessness. Ouch. Yeah. It hurts. Straight through the brain stem. That was definitely not <laughs> something I was expecting. Mm. And this kid again, you know, it's like, oh man. And kids are around all this stuff. You know what it reminds me of too, and you know it's one of the things you can't cram so much into a movie if you were making the series of it. Hal was a young boy when his father was imprisoned by Richard II, um, and when Henry IV finally got out of prison, the first thing he did was kill Richard II, or had him killed. Richard II, the whole time is that Henry was in prison, looked after Hal, raised him as a son. Something about Hal having had a father figure killed by his real father. It, it, that last scene of that boy watching mm. that murder reminds me of the, the brutal things that children sometimes are faced with witnessing. I always wanted to end the movie with um, this, you know, this this idea here, but the front, like a, this particular, it actually turns out to be the second last shot of the movie, but this particular frame of Hal. So you see all the men in the far room, kind of looking in on the outside and now he's in a room four women him and four women and three of them have their heads bowed because it's not like you know we, we're a long way off the meet the time's up movement you know but he's in there with them um whatever that means mm. so uh, this is the uh you get this like king henry chant that goes into the black here i think that's Really well, yeah, we couldn't afford to shoot the parade. <laughs> <laughs> we should we should just have a montage of trebuchets at the end of this film. All the trebuchet shots you couldn't use. Yeah, the, a goof, goof reel. <laughs> now we're in the credits. Christina um, O. These are all of the names you mentioned throughout the commentary. Yeah, I, I mean, all hail. I mean, talk about all hail, all hail, all of these people. I mean, it, you know, it really does take a village and. Uh, it, it's a whole ecosystem that that allows a film to be what it is. Obviously, the there's a full Australian mafia here too: Adam Arkapor, Liz Watts, Jane, uh, Fiona Crombie, Pete Shibberis, uh and well, Andrew Jackson's basically Australian. Lived there. For we we definitely years. take Rob ownership McKenzie of and Sam Petty. Um, but you know, it's such an incredible amount of people that that you know. I mean, I always said this about David too. I think, you know, you know, he's the king of the movie set and you make your choices of who to hire and they're the people who help make you look good along the way and help um, navigate your, charter your path towards where you want to land, which is what you want to say, how the movie's going to look and feel. Um, and part of the excellence of a director is not just being on set and making those choices uh, of, about shots and performance. It's the choices you make ahead of time. It's casting, choosing your heads of department. The wisdom in those choices means that you have a team that's going to win. <laughs> <laughs>